I invite you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of Lamentations. Lamentation chapter 3. Lamentation just following the major prophet Jeremiah. Sort of a postcard inserted in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Here in Lamentation, Lamentations chapter 3, we read in verse 14 the prophet saying, I have become a laughing stock to all my people. Their mocking song all day long. That's verse 14 of Lamentations 3. The prophet is lamenting that he had become one who was the object of the mocking of his people. This term that he uses, a mocking song, may have to do with stringed instruments, actually. And yet, with those stringed instruments, they were using that to taunt him. And as he says, he had become a laughing stock. So here's the picture. He has become the one who the people in the market square, the people all around town, are playing their instruments and using Him as the butt of their jokes to mock Him, to make fun of Him, to laugh at Him. Imagine how Jeremiah must have felt that when he would go out into his own community, that he was the one who was the object of the ridicule of the entire town and he even put it to music. Turn to his prophecy in Jeremiah and go to chapter 20. Let me back just a few pages. Jeremiah chapter 20. Here we have this expressed again by the prophet. If you look down to verse 7, he similarly says, O Lord, Thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou hast overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughing stock all day long. Everyone mocks me. Gosh. Imagine how Jeremiah felt. Everybody mocking him. A laughing stock. And it's like all day long, he says in the text. They're mocking me all day long. Here's my question. Why were they laughing at him? Why were they mocking Jeremiah? What was the source of all of the people there, especially like in his town, and the people of Israel, mocking and laughing at Jeremiah and, and making him the object of their songs of ridicule? Why? What was he doing? Well, the answer is right here in our text. He says in verse 8, For each time I speak, I cry aloud, I proclaim violence and destruction. Because of me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. Why were they mocking? Why were they laughing? Because Jeremiah was preaching the word of God and he was preaching violence and destruction because that's what God had sent him to tell and to warn the nation of Israel. That they had sinned so greatly and so grievously that they were about to be judged. And that they were about to come to a violent end as a nation for their disregard for the law and the ways of God. And this is what he's preaching. And so they were mocking and laughing. Well, here's my next question. Though he's preaching the Word of God, why would that result in them mocking and laughing? If he's actually bringing the Word of God and the truth of God, even if it begins with and deals with judgment, why would they be laughing and mocking at him? Well, certainly one reason that would result in them mocking Him is they didn't believe it. 
They didn't believe that God would ever judge their nation or bring their nation to an end. And certainly that that judgment was imminent. They, they didn't believe it couldn't happen. Not in my lifetime. I mean, come on! God has promised us all these blessings through Moses and we got Moses and we got the prophets and we got all this. He's not going to do that. He's not going to judge Israel. And so, they mocked Him. And they laughed at Him. And at least one reason was because they just didn't believe that He would ever do that. You know, I, I, I fear that we are living in a day very similar. And I fear that even a little church like ours is a laughing stock and we are mocked. Not, not out in the open, not in the public, but probably like behind the scenes. A couple of guys from the local association. Ah, you hear about that Grace Church down there? They're just a couple of people meeting in a storefront. All this stuff. They're mocking. and they laugh. But what are we doing here? Why are we here? We are here to try to bring God's Word. The good stuff about salvation, the Gospel of good news, the glory of Jesus Christ and all that He has done, and the bad news too. That there's judgment that awaits. And it appears to me that the judgment of God is on its way, swiftly coming to a country near you. As we see more and more men and women rushing headlong into wickedness and sin. And as I heard some speaking even between services, all for a buck. They'll do anything the government tells them as long as they pay them. Coming to a country near you. Now, even though these people mock Jeremiah... And even though they made songs about him and he was the object of ridicule, look what he says in verse 9. But if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. And I am weary holding it in. I cannot endure it. That's a preacher. It's tough sometimes to speak of the judgments of God and the wrath of God. But if we don't, woe unto us. And me personally, I feel what Jeremiah said. I have to. He had to. We have to hear what God's Word says. And as Paul said in the book of Acts, the whole counsel of the Word of God, all of it, we need to be familiar with and to understand. And I would think that it would be important to people to understand God's Word. All of it. I couldn't help but think about this as Daniel was reading the book of Amos this morning. I wonder how many churches read the book of Amos. And they hear about that judgment that Amos was talking about. And they go, wow, this is tough. But you know what? It's the Word of God. Now, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. I have no direct revelation from God, no word that He speaks to me. I don't ever come to you and say, God told me to, to tell you this and then go someplace other than God's Word. If you ever hear a preacher say that, run. God told me. And you got all these preachers say, God told me. God gave me a word. Just run. Because whatever He's going to tell you next is a lie. Unless He turns to a verse. Because that's the only thing I can tell you that God told me. God told me what He has in His Word. So as a pastor, I'm not going to give you new revelation. I'm not going to tell you some secret. 
But as a pastor, I am called to preach to you what is in God's Word. And I strive to be faithful to do that to the best of my ability. So I make no apologies for preaching a series on the wrath of God. As we said in Sunday school, if you're not preaching on what is lacking in the day, you're not doing the right thing. And so much of what we hear in churches today is, oh, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that plan might be hell. This is the Word of God. And I think that we live in a day when people don't want to hear the uh, difficult things. And I've told you already that in some churches it is anathema to even mention sin or wrath or judgment. And yet, what are you saved from? These same churches would speak about salvation and being saved and the need to be saved. Well, what are you saved from? That is where we began our study, understanding, first of all, the reality of wrath under the heading, the common conviction that churches teach that you must be saved, but they seldom tell you what it means to be saved. Salvation in the language included with salvation, sozo and soteria are being rescued from peril. Or destruction. And as we saw, that destruction or peril comes from the wrath of God who will cast the wicked into hell. That's biblical. From there, we've gone on and we've begun to look at the chronicle of this concept. That simply means that we're looking at how this is seen. Just seen. Not going into the doctrine. We're just kind of looking at how it's shown in the Scripture. And we're just focusing right now on the Old Testament. We're going to get into the New Testament and the Christian concept of the wrath of God and why it's so important and so wonderful for us. But we're just looking at some of the things in the Old Testament. And we saw, first of all, that the the wrath of God was shown to come from the fall of man. In the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3. And we saw it from there, from some passages through there. And then we went and we saw uh, last time from David in the Psalms and some of the things that he wrote. And then from Psalm 51. And how he wrote that he was God was justified to judge him for his sin. Because he was a sinner right from his mother's womb. And God was just if he had sent him to hell. And judged him. And so from there today, we're going to move on and pick up with a text from one of the wisest men in all of the Bible, one of the wisest men that ever lived, the wisest man that ever lived, Solomon. So I invite you to please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12. Ecclesiastes in chapter 12. Psalms. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is the last chapter. So if you come to that strange book, Song of Solomon, it's just before that. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Now here we have Solomon summing up all that he said in this book. And this is, this is a book that contains a lot of wonderful things that he speaks of. And things that are mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is such wisdom and such help in living your life and understanding life and that we are to live unto God and there's seasons for everything and all that he says. And here he comes down to the very end. And what does he say in verse 13? The conclusion when all has been heard is... Fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. He gets to the very end. He gives His wisdom and He says, here's the conclusion of everything. Of everything in the world. Fear God and keep His commandments. 
It's similar to what Samuel told Israel before they wanted Saul to be their king. He said, I'm going to tell you the good and the right way. Fear God and serve Him. It's the same thing. Fear God and keep His commandments. That is good advice. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God brings so many things that are so proper. When you have a proper understanding of who God is and who you are before God, when there is that right amount of fear and awe of who God is, you will live a good life and you will keep His commandments. But why? Why fear God? Why keep His commandments? Verse 14, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. God will judge everything you do. There's incentive to fear God and keep His commandments. Because God is a God of justice and judgment and every act you do is known by God and will be judged by God. This is a basic principle of the Bible. A basic principle for heeding the things of God and the things of the Bible. Fear Him. Keep His commandments. For, and that conjunction for means, here's why. Because He's going to judge you. You will be judged by God. Now, I'm going to talk all about how wonderful it is that Christians who are saved by the grace of God don't have to worry about that judgment. Because our, our judgment, our, the wrath of God has been taken for us on the cross by our Savior Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. But, still, fear God, keep His commandments, for He'll judge every act. That's amazing. It's amazing that He knows every act. It's amazing that He knows every secret thing that you do. Your deeds are known to God when you think nobody's looking and nobody's watching. God is! Everything. Everywhere. There is nothing that is hidden from God, so His judgment is complete. His judgment is thorough. Here's where I want us to look. Keep, you, keep a marker there in Ecclesiastes 12. But here's where I want us to look at that verse I read as we began the service a little while ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Even as we looked at Jeremiah, here the Apostle Paul in the beginning of this chapter is sort of justifying himself and how he preaches in his ministry. And he's saying to the same thing to them, listen, I've got to preach. I'm a steward of the Word of God. And I don't care what you say. I'm going to tell it like it is and preach the Word of God. He wanted to be faithful, a good steward of the ministry that God had entrusted him with. That's what any good preacher will do. Any real pastor will want to be faithful to the Word of God and to His calling to proclaim the Word of God to His people. To be a good steward of the Word of God to the people no matter how much trouble it brings and no matter how much they may dislike it. I felt that a few times in a few congregations. But look what he says in verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Listen, God even knows your motives. God even knows your motives. God knows the motive that you're here today. Is it to impress your wife? To appease your wife? 
to make someone happy? You think your kids need to be here? God knows the motive of your heart in worship. God knows the motive of your heart in your life. Are you living your life because you want to accumulate things to yourself and go to church and look Christian and be happy in God and in the world? Or are you more like what Jesus spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount where we're seeking first His kingdom and these things are added? That's the right motive. But God says through His servant Paul that God, that He even knows our very motives the intentions of our hearts. So these birds on TV telling you to send them in a hundred bucks and God will give you back ten thousand or a thousand or whatever it is that you might even win a dinner with their bishop if you send them in money. You send them in some money and you might, wow, you might even get to go to dinner with their bishop. Imagine that. All these good things. God knows their motives. They may be fooling a bunch of people and getting people to send them money. Send in your money today. We'll pray for you. Do they really care about you? Do they really care about those people that send in their hard-earned money? I knew a woman once who used to send in all kinds of money like that to one of these TV preachers. I knew, I heard of another woman who did the same thing, sent a bunch of her money, little widow woman, didn't have much, but sent in all she could to one of these TV preachers. Then her house burned down. She had nothing. She wrote them and said, "Uh, listen, I've been sending you money all these years. Is there any way you can help me? You know what they told her? Contact your local church. What is their motive? money to separate you from your money in the name of God. God knows. They may be fooling people, but they're not fooling God. God knows even their motives. We uh, know, therefore, that His judgment is all the more just for He knows the very root cause of our sin. Remember the Tenth Commandment? People don't think it's big a deal that much. You know, thou shalt not envy. I envy. Who can see envy? Nobody knows that. It's in your own heart. It's no big deal. But envy can be shown to be the root cause of many sins. Many of the sins that people commit come from envy in various forms. Coveting. Wanting. And thus it's even one of the Ten Commandments. God knows even your heart. We read in Jeremiah, that prophet we mentioned a few moments ago. You don't have to turn there, but in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, he says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? can't even know your own heart. But God does. Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 there. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And I want to point this out before we move on for our own encouragement and to have a proper perspective. Because I want you to notice that he says, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. You see, there's good. And in the judgment, the good will stand. Paul wrote about that in Corinthians. He wrote about that to the Corinthians, remember? He said that when you stand before God, those good things that you do will last through the fire. But all the, all the chaff will be burned up. Done away with. But there are, I want to say, some good. And God does not miss the good. And I want you to know that as I said a few moments ago, 
when He takes out that heart of stone from you and puts in a heart of flesh, that heart of flesh beats towards God, desires God, desires to do the right things for God, so that even though in every area of our lives there's always a taint of sin, that doesn't mean it's always all bad. We are those who have good motives, biblical motives, from good hearts that have been saved by Jesus Christ. And so I'm not saying that everyone here today is here out of a bad and sinful motive. Christians, though always tainted with sin, yes, will strive to honor and exalt God. And He knows that too. He knows your heart. And He knows that you're sincere. And don't you know that He loves that? Don't you know that that is what is so exciting to us to know that God enjoys our prayer? God enjoys our fellowship? God enjoys our worship? If, God, if you think that God's just looking up there going, well, you know, that church, all they're doing is bad motives. I'm not happy with anything they're doing. Why would we be here? We're worshiping God. And I believe that God is having this worship come up before Him as a sweet aroma pleasing to Him. Worship from His people. Honoring to Him from sincere and genuine saved, changed hearts. That's worshiping God in spirit, which is what Jesus said God desires. So there's nothing wrong with it. And that's what we are striving to do. And I pray that by God's grace, that is what we are doing even now. Okay, I want to actually conclude this kind of brief survey of the biblical doctrine of God's wrath, seeing that it's there in the Scripture with one more text. Now understand, I could turn to verse after verse after verse after verse. Get a biblical concordance and look up the word wrath and you will find it over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Judgment, you'll find it all over the place. Now, the doctrine of wrath in the overall look at the Scripture is more common than the doctrine of heaven. You will find in the Old Testament God promising His people good things if they follow Him, but He takes up a lot more chapters on the judgment if they don't. And so wrath is a genuinely common doctrine, particularly in the Old Testament. So I don't want to overburden you with that. I'm not going to come at you with verse after verse after verse to try to prove that it's there. It's there. You know it's there. Read your Bible and you know it's true. But as one who is called to bring to you the Scriptures, I want you to know what He says. And so I'm asking you to turn to this specimen verse, if you would please, It's found in Ezekiel chapter 7. Ezekiel chapter 7. And we're going to talk a little bit now about this central doctrine given in the Bible known as the wrath of God. And we're going to see that wrath is rightly part of who God is. In fact... Wrath is an attribute of God. It is an attribute of God. So this text in Ezekiel chapter 7, before we look at it, we must understand the context. Similar to what we talked about with Jeremiah. Ezekiel is telling the nation of Israel that they're going to be judged, and in fact they were. He's warning them of the judgment of God. 
Why? Because of their wickedness. Their sin. Now, I've mentioned this to you already before in this series. That you understand what the nation of Israel was doing, what the priests were doing. They were bringing in pagan gods right into the temple. It would be like us here and in a Christian church if we were to bring in a big fat Buddha and sit him up over here. Or something like that. They were bringing in all these pagan, wicked gods. And the priests were leading the people in worship of these pagan gods along with what they said, the God of Israel. So you know what? We want to cover all of our bases. We got our God, the God of the Bible, God of Moses, the God of our fathers. But you know what? There's also this Baal guy. And there's also these other gods. And they were bringing in all of these gods right into the temple, right for worship. And Ezekiel is shown this by God. Visions of it happening. And so, Ezekiel is warning the people that what they are doing is sin and wickedness and it will incur the wrath of God. So he's not done in a vacuum. He's not just saying this in a vacuum. It's because of the sin of the nation and what they were doing. Now, God had been patient. God had sent prophets to warn them over and over And what did the people do? Remember Jeremiah? What did the people do? They mocked. They laughed at them. They didn't believe what they said. And so, though God was long-suffering and patient, He says here in verse 8, The time is up! Now I will shortly pour out My wrath on you and spend My anger against you, judge you according to your ways and bring on you all your abominations. Time's up. And I know that you may get tired of hearing me say this, but God is a long-suffering God, but the word long-suffering itself tells you that it's not forever. It's not forever suffering. It's long-suffering. But that means that there is a time limit. And the limit is up. Time's up. I am no longer going to put up with your sin and your wickedness. Read chapter 1 of Isaiah. These guys are contemporaries. Pretty much. A donkey knows its owner, but you don't know me, the Lord your God. I'm sick of your new moon festivals and all your stuff that you're doing because you're not doing it from your heart. you got all this wickedness involved in your temple. And this, people, is what we are going through today. Church after church has brought entertainment rather than the Word. Church after church has gimmicks and games rather than truth. Church after church has left God out and the glory of God has departed because they have left their God and their first love. And so God says, time's up. Time's up. And in this text, He says He's going to pour out His wrath. We've talked about the word. We've talked about wrath and we've mentioned the word. But I thought I'd tell you at this time, the word in the Hebrew is chemah and it means hot displeasure actually carries the concept of heat with it. Hell is hot. Hot displeasure. It carries that connotation of heat and fury. And so, we sometimes think of and mention the burning 
anger of God. That's His wrath. The burning anger of God. In fact, we see that term used in the text right alongside it. As He says, I will pour out My wrath upon you and spend My anger against you. It's going to be poured out. Needed out. They're going to feel it. They're going to know it. His wrath, His burning anger is going to be meted out upon the people. His anger, His wrath is His righteous indignation. His righteous anger. Because His anger isn't on a whim like some kind of a pagan god. We mentioned that. He's not some Roman god or Greek god throwing lightning bolts down just willy-nilly to, you know, I think I'll hit this guy with a light. It's not like that. No. In the text, it even says that He's going to pour it out. He's going to judge you according to your ways and bring on you all your abominations. It's because of what you have done. It's because of your sin. And it is therefore righteous judgment. Judgment against their sin. It was what they deserved. Remember what we saw with David a couple of weeks ago. I deserve it, God. I know I don't deserve Your love and Your mercy. I am a sinner and so You are right, justified, when You judge me. That's the way we are before God. Any one of us who has been saved understands that God, God would have been perfectly just if He had just consigned me to hell in an instant, in a moment, for my sin. But He is merciful. He is merciful. And so David pleaded not for justice, but for mercy. But the fact of the matter is, they earned this judgment. They earned it. They worked hard at it. In Isaiah chapter 5, we read in that passage that they are sinning as with cart ropes, daring God to judge them. And the picture is of men pulling sin behind them in a cart as they're dragging on it with the ropes. And they're going, Here I am, God! Judge me! If you're really there, if you're really God, judge me! So don't get the feeling or the picture that these people were good people and God was judging them unjustly. They wanted it. They worked at it. They dared God to judge them. And He says, Okay, time's up. I will shortly bring judgment. Verse 3, He says, Now the end is upon you, and I shall send my anger against you. I shall judge you according to your ways, and I shall bring all your abominations upon you. This is what they earned and what they deserved. It's interesting too that this is a picture of uh, him. He says he's going to spend that judgment. It is a picture of if they had earned it, they had stored it up. It was being stored up and being earned and now it's going to be poured out. Now it's going to be spent. And this brings us to that key point of all of this. A key doctrine for us to understand that God is a God of many attributes. You know what attributes are, kids? When we speak of the attributes of God, we're talking about what God is like. Things that you can say to describe God. Things that God is like. His attributes. Some of His attributes you might be able to think of easily and you'd say He's holy. God is a holy God. He is completely holy. There is no sin with God. Never any sin with God. He is perfectly, 
perfectly holy. We can also say that God is perfectly powerful. He has all power. And His power is used perfectly because He is a perfect God. And, of course, we say He is the God of love. Perfect love. Perfect mercy. And so His power is used in conjunction with His perfect love. He is perfectly faithful. He never lies. And so He will bring to pass exactly what He promises. Perfectly. Perfect holiness. Perfect love. Perfect faithfulness. Perfect power. And He is perfectly just. In other words, He is a God of complete and perfect justice. In verse 8, we see here that He speaks of His judgment. What is judgment? Judgment is the punishment against sin. That is judgment. And His judgment must be dispensed. And it will be dispensed perfectly. You know, today we got a lot of people that get away with stuff. They get away with it. You can think of the big crime a couple of years ago and uh, uh, two people dead, a man and a woman, throat slashed, big glove, all that stuff. The trial goes on. If the glove does not fit, you must acquit. Perfect crime. No other evidence of anyone else at the crime whatsoever. And only evidence of this man. And yet he's acquitted. He gets away with it. It happens all the time, I'm sure. People get away with crimes. People get away with misdemeanors. People aren't even caught. People are murdered and nobody's caught. Today, you you get paid for murdering in certain places. But not with God. Nobody's going to get away with it. Ever. Nobody will ever get away with the crimes and the sins that they've committed. His judgment is perfect. Perfect judgment. And as we've been saying, this was not on a whim. This was for their sin. Those who disobeyed, those who ignored the prophets, those who ignored His Word, He was going to judge them. Where do you fit in? This punishment that He's going to bring to them for their sin, what is His punishment? What is this punishment? The punishment is His wrath. The perfectly just God will have a perfect punishment, which is His perfect wrath. This is the God of the Bible. So, the wrath of God is an attribute of God as perfect as all His other attributes. And I don't do this often, but I thought I would read something from one of our great men of the faith, a theologian from a few years ago, A.W. Pink, one of my own personal favorite theologians, and I'm going to read a rather lengthy quote from him because he says it so well, better than I ever could. He says that the wrath of God is as much a divine perfection as is His faithfulness, His power, or His mercy. It must be so, for there is no blemish, whatever, not the slightest defect, in the character of our God. Yet there would be if wrath were absent from Him. Indifference to sin is a moral blemish. You understand what he's saying? 
If God did not pour out wrath, He would not be perfect because then He would be indifferent to sin. And that's a blemish. And our God cannot have a blemish. Indifference to sin is a moral blemish. How could He, who is the sum of all excellency, look with equal satisfaction upon virtue and vice or wisdom and folly? How could God, if He's perfect, look the same on sin and holiness? Here you have people who sin willy-nilly, disregarding God and His ways. And here you have people who have been saved and strive to live holy lives. How could a just God look upon them the same way He looks upon them? He can't. If He did, He wouldn't be perfect. But He is perfect. There is no blemish in Him. He, who is the sum of excellency, cannot look with satisfaction on virtue and vice at the same time. How could He who is infinitely holy disregard sin and refuse to manifest His severity toward it? He can't disregard sin. If He were to disregard sin, that would not be justice. And His justice is perfect. How could He who delights only in that which is pure and lovely not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? How could He not? He must. The very nature of God makes hell as real a necessity as imperative and eternally required as heaven. If you believe that He has heaven, then you must believe that there is a hell. The wrath of God is His eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the moving cause of that just sentence which He passes on evildoers. Because He is holy, He must be just. Because He is perfectly just, He must mete out perfect judgment. And His perfect judgment is His perfect wrath. The wrath of God is an attribute of God. This is the Bible. Wrath, His wrath, is not a bad thing. It is part of His perfection. Part of His holiness. Part of who He is as God. So it is not only necessary, it is demanded by our perfectly holy God. That's why we read about it so much in the Scriptures. He must judge sin. Now, you have all sinned. I can say that with 100% certainty. You have all sinned. Right? What would be justice for you? You've all sinned. You're all sinners. Even you children are all sinners. What would be justice for you? Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. To the very end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, 
Remember what I said about the Israelites. They earned it. So have you. So have I. The wages of sin is death. That's the wrath of God. Eternal death. Eternal punishment. This is His wrath. And it is demanded by His holiness. By a holy God. So, what will you do? There's nothing you can do. You cannot begin to be good enough to appease the wrath of God. There's no way you can pay for the sins you've already committed. And there's no way you're going to stop committing more anyway. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot appease His wrath. You cannot be holy enough for this holy God. You can't do it. You are without hope except for the rest of the verse. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's not justice. That's mercy. And that's your only hope. That's your only hope. And I pray that you all know today not the justice of God, but the mercy of God in Christ. Come to Him if He stirs your heart and the Spirit draws you, come freely to Him and live and be saved from His wrath. It is Christ, Christ only, who can save you from the wrath to come. Do not mock Do not laugh. Come. Taste and see that the Lord is good. This is where we're going. And this is some of what we're going to see as we explore further the beauty of the wrath of God. Because His wrath makes our salvation so wonderful. Let's pray.